Douglas Gelton is one of Scotland's most celebrated crime writers with dark stories that meld history and contemporary life, stretching from the tough streets of his hometown of Glasgow to the wildness of the Scottish Highlands. We're talking Where Demons Hide, his latest thriller with a supernatural edge featuring crime reporter Rebecca Connolly. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's binge reading, Rebecca's scepticism is challenged after a body is found on a lonely moor in the centre of a pentagram. Was she killed by supernatural means, or is there a more down-to-earth explanation? Our giveaway this week is a preview of my new mystery, Susanna's Secret, the second book in the Home at Last series set in 1870s California. And as usual, links for downloading the first four chapters of that book, plus all the links to this episode, can be found in the show notes on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy what you hear, add a review of the show to your favourite podcast site so others will hear about us too. But now here's Douglas. Hello there, Douglas, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Now, I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, and it's 8.30 at night, and you're near to Glasgow and just starting your day. Have you had breakfast yet? Yes, I had a very quick something to eat before we, we came on. That's great. I'm now, I'm now drinking a coffee, so if you hear me slurping, you'll know that's what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And we've already had a conversation that we might be interrupted by your <laughs> rescue dog, so we don't mind if she or he joins the show a little bit later on. <laughs> Listen, you started out writing non-fiction, true crime stories, but now you've moved on to fiction. Particularly today, we're going to be discussing the Rebecca Connolly series. Why did you make that switch to fiction? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. I'd always wanted to write fiction, I think, is the main one. But because I was a journalist, it was like a natural extension to move into non-fiction when I started writing books. And because I had written features on true crime, that was a natural extension as well. That's what I would begin with. But as the non-fiction career progressed, I started to do more historical subjects. But fiction has always been what I wanted to do. And even with the non-fiction, I put a sheen of storytelling on top of the facts. So... Once I had done, I think, about 11 non-fiction books, I think I'd gone about as far as I wanted to go. There was very few subjects that I wanted to write about after that. And so I thought, well, I've got a reputation now. I've got 11 books under my belt. Let's go for the fiction. Yeah, that's a very good place to start with a backlist of 11 books. We'll talk a little bit about a couple of those later on. Did you do crime reporting when you were a journalist? I did. I started my uh, journalistic career with a, a weekly newspaper, a local newspaper in the West End of Glasgow, and basically a very, very small team, two or maybe three reporters and an editor at that time. 
And basically, I became the crime reporter by default, which meant that the editor of the time, Danny Brown, said to me, why don't you arrange to go round the various police offices in our area every week and get the crime reports? So that was me. I then became the effectively the crime reporter, as well as the movie reviewer and occasionally council reporter. And sometimes I'd feature writer because that's how it goes with weekly newspapers. And of course, as the industry began to retract, more and more fell onto fewer and fewer people. Yeah. And that kind of thing is reflected in the Rebecca Connolly books. Yes, it is. Yeah. So Rebecca is a very energetic Scottish reporter, real intrepid woman who is always getting mixed up in crime stories. She's a very likable character, very not-to-be-denied sort of character. What do you enjoy most about writing her as your lead character? (laughs) Well, I've got to say that, to begin with, I don't enjoy writing. Oh. Which is a very strange thing to say. But Dorothy Parker, the, the American writer, once said, I don't like writing. I like having written. And that's what I'm like. Writing to me is a chore. It's it's just what I do. But what do I find to enjoy about writing Rebecca? I think it's her attitude. She's very focused, which I'm not. I tend to go off in search of shiny things. But Rebecca will focus on something and she will get the job done as well as she possibly can. And I, I quite like that about her. The downside to that is that she tends to let her private life lie fallow to an extent. Mm-hmm. But I certainly do enjoy the fact that she's very focused, that she has principles. Over the series, they have had to be eroded slightly as she becomes more realistic about the world and about the industry that she's in. But she still has this basic core principle that she will do the best possible job that she could she will try and get to as many of the facts she knows she's not going to get the full story because we never do get the full story but she'll get as much of the story as she possibly can and contrary to popular belief a lot of reporters are like that yes is is have you known anybody that's rather similar to rebecca yourself Yeah, there have been a couple. She's not based on anybody in particular, not even an amalgam. There have been a couple over the years. I did it myself when I was doing the book about the the ice cream wars here in Scotland, which was a miscarriage of justice, along with my friend Lisa Brownlee. And we were pretty focused then, and that was six months of intense research to pull that book together. A lot of interviews, a lot of trekking about, banging on doors and finding people. So we were pretty focused to do that. And our personal lives tended to go on the back burner during that time as well. The ice cream wars, just for those of us who don't have a clue what those were, give us a very quick... It was a quite dreadful mass murder in Glasgow in 1984 when a fire claimed the lives of six members of one family in the east end of Glasgow, including an 18-month-old child. And it was linked to the rivalry between uh, ice cream van uh, operators. I don't know if you have these in New Zealand, but what we have are, are vans that go around the streets selling ice cream, sweets, crisps. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to sell cigarettes as well. We have Mr Whippy here, yes. It's something similar to Mr Whippy. 
Although we have to stress that Mr. Whippy was not involved at this time <laughs> in this. And it culminated in this quite dreadful crime. And two men were eventually convicted of the murder, but they proclaimed an innocence. Gosh. And Lisa and I picked this up in the early 90s and wrote a book on it. And that kicked off a campaign to have them freed. And about 10 years later, they were cleared at the Court of Appeal. Gosh. And has anybody ever been arrested and charged since? No. No, there have been no further investigations as mm. far as I'm aware. Mm. Yeah. There have been plenty of documentaries. In fact, the BBC just did a two-parter over here on it. But uh, certainly the, the, there seems to be no appetite to find out what actually happened that night. You definitely have an interest in history as well. And in The Rattle of Bones, which is the second to last book that you published in the Rebecca series, it begins with a very dramatic scene, a historic scene of yeah. a totally unjust hanging that occurred when the British were involved in Scottish history. And then it jumps to the contemporary scene, but a parallel thing happening in the contemporary world. You've done that with a number of your books, haven't you? You like almost a dual timeline or hooking something from the past into the present. Yes, well, that's the hook for the Rebecca Connolly books is that there will always be some sort of connection yeah. to something in history or mythology or legend, something like that. The first one, Thunder Bay, which I set on a Scottish island that I made up, and I put all sorts of legends and myths into there, and they threaded through the narrative. The second one, The Blood is Still, was hooked on to Culloden, the Jacobite defeat at Culloden, and it harked back to that. A Rattle of Bones, as you say, talked about James of the Glens, James Stewart, who was wrongly convicted of the murder of a government factor. And he, he was hung on a hill above Balakulish in the Highlands. And his body was left there for, I think, about two years before it was finally taken down. And he almost certainly did not do that murder. It featured in uh, Kidnapped, Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped the case and that there is a theory that uh, the, the real life Alan Breck, Stuart Alan Breck as Stevenson called him was responsible for the murder but there are various other theories as well mm -hmm. so I used that as the mirror and in the modern day another James Stewart is already convicted of, of a murder the murder of his lover and there seems to be evidence now that he did not do it and Rebecca is trying to get the story, but she's got to fight antagonism from the modern day James Stewart's mother, who is upset that Rebecca had tried to do the story before, but then left it. And the reason was that, as Rebecca tried to explain, she, there was nothing she could do. There was nothing new and no media outlets were interested unless something was new. But now, some months later, they found something new and she can use that. And it's an unpleasant facet of dealing with the media from the point of view of civilians that they're, they're looking for news and you can't just keep rehashing old stuff, although they do tend to do that as well. So the mother can't understand this and Rebecca has to, has to fight her way through uh, this cold exterior that uh, Mrs. Stewart has to try and get to the truth. Mm, mm. And where demons hide, you return to the slightly more supernatural and mythical aspect of things, don't you? You have a victim yeah. who 
digs a pentagram for herself and dies within this pentagram. And it's obvious in the beginning that she thinks that being in a pentagram is going to protect her from evil forces. But unfortunately, she dies anyway. The pentagram doesn't work in the way that she'd hoped. And the whole story is unraveling just what's going on with her and the local cult that she is a part of. Yes, that's right. Well, she's not. She's investigating the local cult. Oh, that's cult. right. So, yeah, she's investigating um, it. That's right, yeah. But again, that's based on an actual case in the 20s on the island of Iona when a woman was found dead out on a hill and she had dug a pentacle around herself and there was a suggestion that she was trying to protect herself from evil forces. Uh, and I've used that as a springboard and built everything else on it. But again, yes... It's an example of just using the past and various bits of mythology and belief and magic to to tell a story. Uh, The solution is very much down to earth. Publishers can be a bit worried when you're doing something that seems to span a couple of genres. So, and I've got to say, my publisher never said this, but I preempted it by assuring them, (laughs) by the way, when you see this, you might think that it's going one way, but it's it's not all very much down to earth. I didn't realise that there was actually a historic case where Demons Hide has partly based on. Do we know really what the story was with that person in the 1920s? She was involved in all sorts of um, occult groups. There was a suggestion that there was an involvement at, at some point by Alistair Crowley, oh. who was a well-known occultist from the early part of the 20th century. Mm. And nobody really knows. They think she probably just died of exposure. I think she was naked. I, mean, I could be wrong about that, but I think she was naked. And the nights on the these Hebridean Isles can get very, very cold. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I think that's what it was. But they, they, they believe that she that she thought she was under psychic attack and she was trying to protect herself. Mm. Do you always know when you start how the story is going to unfold and end? Tell us a bit about your writing process. I never know how it's going to end. I have no idea. I just start. I get an idea. I might have a notion of a couple of scenes through the book that I'd want to get to. On very, very rare occasions, I have some vague, nebulous notion of an ending, but I just start writing and I see where it takes me. I laugh in the face of planning. I sneer at planning. And sometimes, secretly, but don't tell anybody this, I do wish I could plan because it would make things a a lot easier for me. But no, I just can't seem to plan. I'm too impatient. If I've got an idea, I just want to get started. I don't want to sit and work it out. I just want to get started and see where it takes me. And I suppose I could say it means if I have any twists, if I have any reversals, that when I get to them, if they surprise me, they'll surprise the reader. But I don't think that's true. But the other thing that I have come to believe is that although I say I don't plan, I think there's a part of my brain that has already planned it. Because very, very often I will just be writing away and I'll do something on page 220, say. And I'll just be sitting writing. I'll say, oh, right, that can happen. And then I stop and I'll say to myself, oh, that's why I did that on page 62. So I think there's something going on in the non-planner's brain. That portion of the brain has already planned the book. It just hasn't told me 
I'm on a need-to-know basis. And it will let me know in good time. And do your characters sometimes refuse to do the things that you think they should do or want them to do? Yeah, sometimes you just can't get something to work properly. You want the character to do this and you realise, no, no, that character couldn't do that or wouldn't do that because of such and such and so forth. And then you have the characters who you think are going to be minor characters, but suddenly you realise, no, wait a minute, this character could do more. And you start to give them more and more to do. And then there's the point, in my first novel, Blood City, there was a character who I had intended to kill off in that book. And as I came to that point, I decided, no, no, that character's not going to that. I'm going to let that character live. I'm being careful here not to, to give any sort of gender yes. because that could that could give it away. Yeah. That character's going to live. And I was known in that first series, the David McCall series, for killing characters off. That's why I'm not very good at Twitter because there's only so many characters in Twitter and I would kill them all off. But... The, the other side in, in the, that first Davy McCall book is a character that I'd intended to carry on at least to the next book. And I was coming to a point in the book and I, I, and I note this is where this character has to die. And not only that, I know who it is that does the deed. None Amazing. of that was planned. It just happened as I was writing. Yeah. I did have a look at the list of your nonfiction books and there was one there that really stood out. And I think you also did say that it was one of the books that you're still the proudest of, and that's the one that's based on the true story of a remarkable fellow called Peter Williamson. The book's called Indian Peter, and he had the most remarkable life. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? I'm sure some listeners may be very interested enough to follow up on that book. Peter Williamson was a teenager in Aberdeen, and he was taken uh, effectively by slave traders, and he was more or less abducted and transported across the Atlantic to the American colonies where he was sold into indentured servitude. He was only 14, but they claimed that he had given permission, but he hadn't, and he hadn't spoken to his family who back in Aberdeen were searching desperately for him, but he was being hidden away from them before they embarked. So his services were bought. Indentured servitude meant that he was indentured to somebody for about seven years and didn't have any rights apart from the ones that his master gave him. He was lucky, and he got quite a, a decent master, and he served out his time. And when the end of the seven years came, the seven-year contract, he was free. He met a woman he married. He set up his own farm. He was then attacked by Native Americans, who were then at war with the British during the French and Indian War, as it was called. So different tribes aligned with either side, and these were Delawares who, I believe, were aligned with the French. So the farm was attacked. He was taken hostage and held captive in the Indian village. And then he escaped from them and made his way back, found that his farm had been burnt out, his wife had died of a fever, he then enlisted with the local militia because he wanted some payback and he went to war. 
He was at a place called Oswego, which I think is in the New York State in the north, and it was under siege. He was taken prisoner by the French and exchanged for French prisoners and dumped on the south coast of England. He then walked back from there, back to Aberdeen, and he told his story as he went along to get some food and to get some money. And he honed his storytelling abilities and he embellished on his life quite considerably, because that's what we all do. He managed to get a book of his adventures published in York, thanks to some local businessmen, which he then sold as he made his way back to Aberdeen. Once back in, in Aberdeen, he was telling his story. He was blaming the local business people, the local politicians who were behind the indentured servitude trade. He was arrested. His book was burnt in the street by the public hangman and he was run out of town. He went to Edinburgh where he waged, I think, about a 20-year legal war against the Burgesses of Aberdeen about what had happened to him. The whole legal side was full of all sorts of nonsense and jolly japes, I suppose, because either side, was he was pulling dirty tricks, so were they. Not that that would happen in our current legal system, of course. And in the meantime, he became a publican, he became a restaurateur, he became a publisher, a printer, he wrote some books, he set up the first penny post in Edinburgh, he published the first street directory of Edinburgh and he won his court case eventually. He went through a very well-publicised divorce that was well-publicised because he wrote about it. And eventually the penny post was bought off him. He got a small pension from what would have been the GPO, I suppose. And he died almost penniless and probably an alcoholic. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but was just an absolutely fascinating story that when I stumbled on it whilst doing research for one of the other nonfiction books, I thought, I've got to tell this. And I did. And it is one of the nonfiction books of which I'm most proud. Yeah. There's some of them that I'm not terribly proud of, but certainly that one, I'm still proud of it. It's out of print now, unfortunately. Well, you ought to put it into ebook if, if you've still got yeah, the rights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got the rights. The rights have returned to me. But to do that properly, you need to have time. And yeah. I'm afraid I'm under contract to write too many books to do that. Yeah. Look, you say on your website, and it's been obvious hearing you talk, that you're very much steeped in the real stories of Scotland. And that comes through in what you talk about. I'm sure that that is also an aspect of your books that your audience appreciates. Did you get that sort of feedback from your readers? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a certain amount of hyperbole there. But yes, I am fascinated by history. And because I'm Scottish, because I'm in Scotland, then it becomes Scottish history to a degree anyway. Um, and because of the Rebecca books, I'm always looking for something that I can pluck and say, right, I can use that. I can do uh, a, a story uh, about that. Next year's Rebecca, Children of the Mist, kind of reflects something to do with the McGregor clan, which was put to the horn, it was prescribed. And because of the way that they would um, emerge from the mist to steal the cattle or rob somebody, when they were outlawed and then meld back into it, they became known as Children of the Mist. So it's little bits like that 
that I look for and I think, right, how can I build a modern day story on that? I've also just had my first proper historical novel published called An Honourable Thief. And that, that moves from London to Edinburgh in 1715 against the backdrop of the Mar rising when the Earl of Mar raised the standard of the old pretender, James Edward Stuart, and began a fairly short-lived rebellion to try and get the Stuarts back on the throne. So that's very much the background, and I've laid a story of crime and espionage on top of it. So I'm now doing very much historical material as well. So how many books are you writing a year? At the moment, unfortunately, I think I've got to do three this year. I've done two, and I've got to try and get another one done by the end of the year. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Don't tell either of my publishers that, for goodness sake. But no, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, but I'm going to give it the the old college try. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So how many publishers are you working with? Two. Two. Polygon in Edinburgh and Canelo in London. Great. Look, Douglas, as reader, we are coming to the end of our time together. We like to talk to all our authors about their reading taste because this is the joys of binge reading. And we mostly feature people with quite a reasonable backlist so that if listeners enjoy hearing about their work, there's lots of other books for them to refer to. But that's not necessarily the case always. Are you a binge reader? And who would you like to recommend to the people who are listening in terms of what you're reading at the moment? I'm not a binge reader and I'm not a binge viewer either. I don't binge TV. I'll still do the old fashioned thing of maybe watching one episode, perhaps not one a week, but certainly, you know, one every two or three nights. Yeah. And I don't binge read. I once did binge read and that was in my teens. And I read just about everything by Ed McBain that I could at that time. And I continued to read his books as they came out. Currently, I do a lot of reading on behalf of other people. So you could ask, will you read this and give me a puff? And if it's somebody that I know, will you read my book for me and, and give me some feedback? So there's a lot of that. So there's very, very little time to read for pleasure. But when I do read for pleasure, there's a lot of good, and they're friends of mine, good Scottish authors. There's Denzel Myrick, Carol Ramsey, Michael J. Malone, Neil Broadfoot, Gordon Brown, all good writers. But my preference is for the American writers. And I'm a huge fan of Robert Crace. Oh, yes. Uh, I love Robert Crace's work. Mm. And I'm a big fan of Dennis Lehane as as well. So generally, when they've got one coming out, I will snap it up. But at the moment, I'm reading something for somebody else. And I think I've got another one sitting to get to. But next on my reading pleasure list is S.G. McLean's The Bookseller of Inverness. It's an historical book, and I want to get to that. I really want to read that. Now, before we started talking on this podcast, you mentioned that you too had been involved with a podcast with Denzel. Tell us a bit about <laughs> that podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we did a whole a whole stream of podcasts called Spooks, S-B-O-O-K-S. And really a lot of them are just Denzel and I having a laugh, just gabbing away to each other about anything. Denzel's very, very funny. Don't tell him I said that. 
<laughs> I'll deny I said that. A lot of it is, and we have this relationship. We are constantly insulting each other. So there's a lot of banter going on. But we did have guests and we interviewed the likes of Ian Rankin and Shona McLean, SG McLean, who I mentioned, Lynn Anderson. We've had all sorts of guests on there. And the last one that we did, because we had to stop doing them because we were both so busy, he had a couple of books to write as well. Plus he had work to do for the upcoming TV series of his books. I hate him. So the last one we did was with David Baldacci. So we thought we would go out in a high... And Mr. Baldacci was absolutely incredible. He was a great guest. It's fantastic. I'm very disappointed because we did talk at the beginning about how your dog almost always interrupted these podcast episodes, but he hasn't interrupted us today, has he? Not a word from him. I'm disappointed myself. It's not like him. He must be asleep somewhere because I took him out a walk before we came on. So he's probably relaxing somewhere having had his breakfast and his walk, and he's happy. Yeah, that's wonderful. So tell us what's on your desk for the next 12 months. You've mentioned that there is another Rebecca story coming. We're still going to hear a bit more of Rebecca for a while yet, are we? Yes, I'm contracted for another three, including the one that's already written. So the Children of the Mist will be out in the UK, certainly early summer 2023. An Honourable Thief has just come out in hardback. It'll come out in paperback in April, I think, next year. Mm-hmm. I've written the second one in that series, which is called A Thief's Justice. I'm not sure of the release date for that. I've got the third one to write. It's not got a title. And as I say, another two Rebecca's to do. So all that's got to be done more or less over the next 18 months. Yes, you are going to be very busy now. Do you like interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great to to talk to readers as long as they're being nice. (laughs) (laughs) But I've not had any experiences, but I've been told stories by other authors about some readers have been quite unpleasant to them. I've got to say I've had nothing but but decent readers. Um, I can be found on Twitter and there's a Douglas Skelton author Facebook page. And I'm also on Instagram somewhere. I think it's Doug Skelton one or something like that. We'll so put all of those I, I, in the show notes so that people will yeah, be able to find you. I, I never remember the actual thing. I know I've supplied them to you, but I never remember the actual handles. But I've also got a website, which is just DouglasSkelton, com. I think. So th- there is a website. There's all sorts of things in the website because I'll occasionally put just an article on about something or I'll lift something from one of the older books, the nonfiction books, and put that in there just to give people something to read if they want. Tell me, in terms of Scottish history, you've had an incredibly turbulent and colourful history, haven't you? Do you think there's anything in particular either about your geographic location or the nature of the Scottish character that has created that turbulence? Yeah, I think there probably is. I don't know whether the weather has anything to do with it, <laughs> but certainly the topography would have something to do with it because the mountains can be a, a tremendous barrier. But whether or not about our history is unique, I really couldn't say because I'm a storyteller, not an historian, so I don't really analyse yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. But I would imagine that all countries have their own blood-spattered history. Yeah. But ours is particularly blood-spattered, certainly. But I think it's probably the same 
everywhere. But we would like to think that ours is unique. Certainly, I think the only thing that would be unique would be the different accents and the different languages that 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 we would have employed back in history. Because it's been very much a polyglot nation. Because you'd have the Gaelic, you'd have English, you'd have Lalland Scots, and then you'd have Old Scots, and all sorts of things going on. So a Babel-like country of people perhaps speaking different languages. Yeah. Oh, there we are. There we are. There's Mickey now. So he didn't let me down after all. I just find Scottish history fascinating. I think probably because when I was at school, they didn't teach it to yeah. any great degree. So you know, we didn't get a lot of the things. And there's so much about Scottish history that just isn't known. A lot of Scots just don't know what went on or they've got mm. the whole wrong idea. I mean, Culloden, for instance, there's a lot of people who think that it was English against Scots, but it wasn't English against Scot because there were Scots on both sides. Yeah. There were Scots in the government forces, and obviously there was, it was the clans. So it wasn't an English against Scotland uh, conflict at all. Mm. And it was the same with the Wars of Independence. Robert the Bruce, a great Scottish hero, actually fought for the King of England at one point. It's a very, very complex history yeah. of shifting loyalties and shifting allegiances and caught in the middle of all this of the ordinary people. The best historian I have ever read was John Preble. And I say this to anybody who listens, that if you want to know about Scottish history, then go to John Preble's books, go to The Lion in the North, in which he, he outlines just about everything in, in Scottish history. And he does it so very well. And his books about Culloden and the Highland Clearances and Glencoe are just so fascinating, so well-researched and so well-written. You can't get any better than that. And are they, I'm sorry, I don't know him, are they fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction, yeah. but so well, so well written and yeah. so well researched that are incredible pieces of work. I know there are history, historians who take exception at some of the things that he says. He's been declared as a socialist historian, which kind of suits me. But I just find his writing so good. Mm. Look, just one last question, actually. I'm interested. I did a history degree. I'm by no means a historian, but we had a similar thing here that the school curriculum very much reflected the kind of powers that be of the day. And, and so you really only got one version of history. For you, was it more of an anglicised version of Scottish history that was taught because effectively you were part of the United Kingdom? It was only, from memory, because it was some time ago, from memory, the only bits of Scottish history that we got were those that were part of British history. Yeah. Uh, we maybe have got a wee bit about Culloden and the Jacobites and got a wee bit about Bannockburn, but mostly history, to my memory, was British history, which meant very much London-based in a way. Yes. We weren't taught much about the Scottish kings and queens. You'd get Mary, Queen of Scots. You would get James VI, but only because he became James I yes. of England and Scotland and Wales, mm. that sort of thing. But there was such a rich history that I discovered when I started to read for myself, mm. going further back and the various other Stuart kings and that just wasn't taught. I think it has changed now, certainly. Well, there's obviously a very rich ground there still for you to draw on, which is wonderful, Douglas. So thank you yeah. so much. No, th thank you. Thank you. On Binge Reading next week, Christmas inspiration for Melody Carson, an award-winning author of more than 200 novels and more than 20 Christmas novellas, 
creating stories for people who may not expect a fabulous family time in the festive season, but can still find hope and joy. That's Binge Reading next week. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and happy reading.